is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. to part two of episode 20. Today we're going to be looking more at Martin R. Delaney and specifically looking at his adulthood and when he starts writing and becoming involved in political movements. So when we left off he'd just left his parents in Chambersburg to go to Pittsburgh for an education. Yeah so in Pittsburgh Delaney enrolls in a newly established school and he begins studying Latin, Greek, the classics, and medicine. Um, This is possible because the black citizens of Pittsburgh had been working to establish the African Education Society, which is a sort of college slash preparatory school um, that's headed up by the Reverend Lewis Woodson, who frankly deserves an entire episode of his own. So that's two people so far we've identified that we need to follow up on. Yeah, I think the more we uh, the more we talk, the more people we're going to be adding to that list. Um, one of whom might be Delaney's roommate, Molliston M. Clark. Just, just a great um, name. Yeah, I love that name. So together, Delaney and Molliston or Clark um, kind of put their heads together and end up founding an association for their intellectual and moral improvement. Um, And this is called the Theban Literary Society. Yeah, we don't know that much about it. Um, It's something that we should do more digging on, but if you know about it, let us know. Um, But uh, I saw biographers compare it to sort of Edgar Allan Poe's literary society. So, I mean, it's I imagine it's sort of a a reading slash conversation um, slash potentially writing group. Yeah. Delaney goes on studying medicine for a while during this time period. Um, Some sources say he eventually shifts to dentistry, but we'll put a pin in that because there's other other evidence that he never stops actually practicing or studying medicine. So, um, yeah, but maybe also becomes a dentist. So add that to his list of accomplishments. Yeah, now we're starting to see why that list at the start was so long. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I all, I have a, like, a lot of kind of, I don't know, I really identify with that impulse to do all the things. Like, when I was growing up and people asked me what I wanted to be, I always had a long list of things and not just one thing. And I feel like Delaney's that same way. Um, which is, yeah. And he, like, makes good on that. Yeah, that impulse to do all the things. Yeah, he's like a true polymath because not only does he decide to do all the things, but it seems like he was pretty good at all of the things that he tried. Yeah. We don't have a good term for that outside of the maths, right? Like, I was trying to think of it. Like, there's the term jack of all trades, but that that implies the second half of the saying, master of none, which is definitely not the case 
with Delaney, he, like, is good at what he does. Oh, yeah, that's true. I don't really like that term, though. Well, yeah, it's gendered. I don't think polymath <laughs> is specifically related to math. Is it not? I don't know. I've always heard okay. it as... I've always thought of it as not being specific to any particular subjects. Maybe I've just only ever heard it in regard to actual math. Like, So it's around this time that this this sort of landmark moment happens. It's something that radically shapes the lives of Delaney's life, but also the lives of other Black writers and activists who are working in this period, or sort of coming of age right around this period. And that event is the Nat Turner Rebellion. Um, So Nat Turner was an enslaved um, minister from Virginia uh, I tried to find a really good kind of podcast to point you to about his life and the event and the rebellion he leads, but I found a podcast episode. Um, I won't recommend it, though. <laughs> it wasn't great. Well, no. Um, <laughs> there was information there, but it was from a very, um, I don't know, like, I know our our, our, our content is also from a white perspective, but this was like, a white perspective that's not like really kind of self-critical at all and I yeah so I can't really recommend it um but I think there are some things that we can link to in the show notes if you want to learn more about the Nat Turner Rebellion but I'll just kind of give you the Cliff Notes version here um so, yeah I got a lot of information for this episode from a website called blackpass.org and they have a really good page about the Nat Turner Rebellion okay. and obviously they are explicitly um, coming at it from a black perspective. I'm pretty sure all of their writers are black as you would expect. But... Good. Yeah, I mean like the thing I listened to was from... Yeah, that's a really good source. Yeah. It was like a white historian and yeah. Anyway, so uh, not gonna not gonna pass that on. If you're interested in this kind of thing, Black Past is a really good resource because it does literally from pretty much every point in history up to the present day. So they've got yeah pages on like they've got pages on Black Lives Matter as well as pages on slavery. So oh wow, I hadn't heard of that. I think you might be interested in it's probably there. That's really cool. I will... yeah they've got a they've got a good page on Delaney. Yeah, cool. Sorry. No, it's fine. Um... I'm just like, have I been living under an internet rock that I didn't know about this? Um, Apparently, yes. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so the Nat Turner Rebellion. It's really sort of remarkable in American history because it is one of the only rebellions by enslaved people that takes place. So there are lots of what historians refer to as plots and conspiracies. There are lots of plans, let's say, to rebel against slave owners. Um, but often what happens is that uh, the white people hear about it in time to stop it from happening. Um, Nat Turner's is different in that he only tells four people and he only tells them a short period of time before they actually start rebelling. Um, and so... He, uh, he, there's this sort of like eclipse of the moon 
that coincides with what people think is a the interruption of Mount St. Helens um, that Turner believes is a sign from God because he's very religious, he's very devout, uh, that he needs to rise up against slave owners. And he tells only his like four most trusted friends and they sort of organically kind of gain followers as they go from plantation to plantation, murder, murdering all of the slave owners and their wives and children. Because Turner believes that he needs to kind of break the idea that whiteness somehow protects people. So, yeah. I mean, he doesn't, like, he, he intends to keep the rebellion going for longer than it does. It's only a two-day thing. Um but so at first he wants to to kill the women and children too to to sort of show his fellow enslaved people that like whiteness is not some sort of sacred protecting thing but then he eventually wants to stop killing women and children um and even men if they surrender um but so eventually sort of like militias catch up and scatter the group um and catch most of his fellow um most of his compatriots, but he manages to sort of evade attention for 41 days. And in that time, sort of the press has this heyday, and it just sends shockwaves across the country. Virginia, which is like one of the most like doubled down states when it comes to slavery, actually has like these open debates about we need to end slavery, not because it's morally wrong, which I mean, this is their thinking, right? Not because they think it's morally wrong, but because they're like, oh, this this is dangerous to us. Um, um, Virginia is like the original slave state, isn't it? So yeah, it really yeah, is, yeah. I mean, like... Um, amazing, these conversations that, like, Virginia is the state that kind of calls for the electoral college in the three-fifths rule. Yeah, so even, even though... So even though it's not, like, considered a successful rebellion, it is a success if it, like, creates that sort of a shockwave that people are like, oh, maybe we need to end slavery. Like, that is a huge accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. Even if it's not, even if it's not, like, this complete sort of, like, overturning of slavery, which I don't think T- Turner actually ever thought he was going to accomplish maybe he did i don't know but um it's also one of the most well-documented uh what they call quote slave rebellions because um turner um interviews with uh, a journalist and kind of gives his confessions and so that's published as um i mean it's like in time for his trial but also published later yeah Um, yeah so um and i say trial what happens what i what i learned is that the sorts of trials that enslaved peoples got were the same kind of trial that you that happened in the salem witch trials um it's not a jury by your peers even though like for enslaved people or for even free black people at this time it was never a jury of your peers it's not a jury trial at all it's it's that the judge hears the evidence and then makes this final decree. But there was never any sort of circumstance in which Turner was going to be exonerated. And he knew it, and so he he told his story. Um, yeah, like, it really is a show trial. Yeah. Yeah. 
So this happens, and as you can imagine, like, since shockwaves not only through the nation, but through black communities around the nation, um, and really, I think, informs the rest of Martin or Delaney's life. Yeah. Especially because this is happening when he's essentially college age. Like, that's a defining time in your life. Yeah. Like, seeing that, even if, like you say, even if it wasn't successful, seeing that there are people who are talking about this kind of thing and, uh, like, yeah, this this is going on. Yeah. Because um, I know you said you said he's college age, but he can't go to college, can he? Because publicly funded schools won't allow black people in and... I imagine he can't afford to go to privately funded schools. No. They probably also wouldn't let him in. Institute. And um, actually, like, Delaney is headhunted by the people who are running Oberlin. Um, But he turns them down because at that time, their curriculum is basically what he's already done at the African Education Society. So he doesn't need, yeah. like, it's like getting two, two master's degrees or, like, two, you know, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it could be useful. It could be useful. You could learn more, but he doesn't he doesn't see it as uh, a good use of his time. Um, Rollins says he doesn't he do- doesn't understand the value of a diploma. Like, he, he has the knowledge. Why does he need the paper that shows that he has the knowledge? Um, so in 1831, Delaney... Uh, apprentices with an abolitionist doctor named Andrew and McDowell. And this won't be his last apprenticeship. So Robert Levine reports that Delaney would apprentice with four more doctors over the course of the next 15 years. And they are Dr. F. Julius Lemoyne, Dr. Joseph P. Gasm, Dr. William Elder, and Dr. Jonas R. McClintock. So that's a lot of apprenticeship. So he's learning all of these different sorts of things um, and continues to build on his medical career for the next 15 years. That's huge. Yeah, and I kind of wonder whether all of these apprenticeships are kind of like, um, I don't know, if a person was to do a load of unpaid internships in... Or in an academic situation, if a person were to do a lot of casualized contracts, is is it that he's getting a lot of opportunities or is it that mm-hmm. he can't get, you know, he can't get more advanced roles so he's doing a lot of apprenticeships because that's what he can do? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think... So what I, like... I mean, it's not a really regulated system at that point in time. And so, like, he could just open up a practice, you know. So, and he does open up a practice. But, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I, I do wonder, like, what's going on with all of these apprenticeships and if it's, if he's, if he's doing it just to learn more from these doctors or, or if, like, I think what you're, what you're getting at, if he's, if he's trying to access, like, a different clientele or sort of, um, yeah, like, yeah, like, what's going on there? It's hard to say. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't want to downplay his accomplishments, and I'm not saying that's not because, you know, I'm saying is this possibly because of his access to opportunities is different from 
these other doctors. Yeah. Well, and part of me wonders if it's like, you know, in certain places he's able to open up his own practice, but in certain communities that is not really a, th a possibility. And so, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The next kind of thing on Delaney's ever-expanding list of accomplishments is that in 1834 he founds, quote, the first total abstinence society, and quote, for black people. Um, it's a philanthropic society, which is sort of a front for the Underground Railroad. So that's awesome. Yeah. And I think also in this period of his life, so he's still in Pittsburgh, um... What Wallen writes, quote, The emissaries of the South instituted the fiendish spirit of mobism, selecting either the dwellings or the business places of the prominent racial term men of the city, end quote. And I think she's referring to KKK activity. And I think what, it's, it's so, like, I don't know. I think because I'm not like reading it in the time period with that historical context. So it, it feels really oblique to my 21st century eyes. But I think that she's talking about attacks by the KKK. Yeah. And I think that she's saying that Delaney is actively lobbying against them. Uh, he goes to the judge, like the main, the big judge in Pittsburgh at the time for assistance saying basically like, his community is trying not to be violent. They just want to protect themselves and they need some assistance. Um, and so Rollins notes that because of this lobbying, he is chosen as, quote, one of the special police from among the blacks and whites appointed in conjunction with the military called out by the intrepid mayor of Pittsburgh, Dr. Jonas R. McClintock. Uh, Which is one of the doctors that he... Uh, so one of the doctors that he... Yeah, he apprentices yeah. with the mayor. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so I think he's part of this special force that is, like, working to prevent uh, violence against the black community in Pittsburgh, is what I'm getting from this. Yeah, that's certainly how it reads to me. Okay. Yeah. So, basically, like, special agent <laughs> Delaney here. <laughs> Going for that, in 1836, Delaney was chosen to speak at a national convention meeting with Woodson, who's one of his former teachers. Um, and that meeting was relocated and then cancelled, but the invitation was a sign of things to come for Delaney. So obviously already his views and opinions are being valued and he's seen as a kind of leader in this community. Um, and as we kind of, Courtney kind of gestured to before, in the same year he sets up a medical office and he is practicing as a copper leecher and leader, which obviously are all <laughs> pretty regular practices at the time, even if they yeah. aren't now. Uh, maybe that's he's so maybe that's some of the things that you're yeah. saying. Yeah. Because the working classes can't afford them, they might yeah. live longer. But he's sort of like those specific those specific practices are sort of like saved for emergencies, right? So he's sort of a nineteenth century urgent care, if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> And I guess if you are in, like, dire straits, you don't have time to be racist about who's yeah. treating you. I, I wonder, though, if he's just practicing specifically for the black community, and I suspect that would be the case. 
Yeah, quite possibly. I would yeah. imagine. I mean, and might well Pittsburgh, we know, um, well, we know because of something that we're going to get to in a little while, there are sort of middle class uh, black people living in Pittsburgh at the time. So people who could afford a doctor. Um, and then the next year, 1837, Delaney, another one of the things he's involved in founding, um, is the Young Men's Literary and Moral Reform Society of Pittsburgh and Vicinity. And he actually serves as the group's librarian. So that's <laughs> another, you know, <laughs> another title for his CV, which is already incredibly yes. long. Um, and around 1839, he's elected as the Board of Managers of Pittsburgh Anti-Slavery Society. At their annual convention, he gives a speech, uh, the annual convention in the same year, he gives a speech in which he compares the plight of the Jewish slaves um, in the Old Testament in Egypt um, to the plight of his own people. So folks are super scandalized by this. And by folks, I mean white folks mostly. Um, His audacity in comparing himself and his people to sort of the biblical chosen ones. Um, But he doesn't back down despite severe criticism from white attendees. And he notes that, quote, in the course of events, this would become an established fact. And by this, that, like, the egregiousness of... American slavery would become an established fact that it's yeah I mean I think that today we would we would say that like I mean I don't know I don't that sort of historical analogy just doesn't to today I think it would be like uh, yeah I don't know I don't know what I'm trying I'm having trouble articulating yeah I know what you're getting yeah it it might be reversed yeah where you would I mean, I think if someone says the word slave, then, um, yeah, enslaved African people is the first thing that would pop into most people's yeah. heads, rather than Jewish people in ancient yeah. Egypt. Yeah. So now the analogy might be reversed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so obviously Delaney ends up being correct. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, so this kind of kicks off this real period of activism for him. And later in that same year, he takes this trip through Mississippi, Louisiana, Texas, and Arkansas, observing slave life in the Deep South. So he, I mean, like, I can't even conceive of this just knowing what I know historically of a black man touring through the deep south pre-civil war like how how dangerous that was i don't know like and this is like there's no elaboration like what happens to him during this period it's it's super dangerous i don't know who he's traveling with or like what he goes through or anything it's just sort of like this line in his biography that yeah i mean like (laughs) Yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, yeah, it's like, no, I know, yeah, it's like, I don't know, a really dangerous thing to be doing in a lot of ways. But he survives and he goes back to Pittsburgh and having like learned a lot about 
what life is like throughout the country for people in slavery. Yeah. And then if we we gonna skip a few years, but we have some good news, which yeah. I feel like is I don't know, some of this is good news and some of it's much it is, needed. Yeah, a lot of it is very dark. So on the fifteenth of March eighteen forty three, he marries Catherine A. Richards, who is the youngest daughter of Charles Richards, who is a black butcher, and Felicia Fitzgerald, an Irish immigrant. I put a lot of um, exclamation marks here because this is a biracial marriage in a time when, like, yeah, like, this is really exciting and cool and also, like, wow. Yeah. I'm not being very articulate about this, but, I mean, yeah, like, I feel like that was illegal in a lot of states and... It's, it's a super big thing, like, just to even hear about this happening. I mean, I knew it don't, I know it does, ha- did happen, but, like, yeah. Yeah. And it, they seem like, like you say, it's not quite, in hiding, like, they're just, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, um, you know, a hundred years later, it's still a bit frowned upon by mainstream racist society. So, yeah, absolutely. I know what you mean. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, I think possibly it's more feasible for them because she's an Irish immigrant and yeah, um, the Irish occupy like a sort of testy social position at this time. Um, yes. Like yeah. a lot of immigrants in the 1800s, even white immigrants from like Ireland and Sweden aren't actually considered fully white. Like their, their foreignness is sort of like well, and the yeah, the experience yeah. of the Irish is expe- is especially um, you know different from say British people, or you know this is oh, before yeah, yeah. nineteen fourteen. Yeah. So the but yeah, the experience of a, an Irish immigrant is going to be very different from the experience of an English immigrant. Um, yeah, which is they, not I mean, the same, but, sorry, um, I feel like it becomes this kind of trope of people pretending that. Irish people went through the exact same thing as um oh yeah no no it's on a totally other level but there is prejudice yeah I mean they're like yeah yeah my my family is Irish immigrants and uh there was a lot of prejudice against Irish people but they're also still white and they're also still free like yeah they have like capitalism working against them and a lot of like a lot of people wouldn't hire them or kind of like frowned on them like not only in the u.s also in the uk there's a lot of like really racist stuff in the 19th century about irish people um like just the archival work i did during my dissertation there were like i didn't like i mean culturally i i have not been raised as an irish person but just knowing that's where my ancestors are from like it was really disturbing to come across that in the archives but like i mean that's still nothing compared to, to like, actual slavery and hundreds of years of, you know, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you have, yeah, you have, like, the navvies and, like, Irish people certainly aren't treated well. So maybe that yeah. makes this a bit more yeah. okay. But, yeah, they're on a that was, uh, different level. Yeah different relation to the dominant the real rabbit trail just to say that yeah like they 
Yeah. <laughs> um, but Catherine, who seems to have gone by Kate, uh, was an heir to her father's estate, which is super exciting. Um, which was estimated at two hundred and fifty thousand dollars in eighteen forty-three. Uh, so yeah, that's a that's a wealthy that's a wealthy family. Um, but the Richards lost the estate in eighteen forty-seven. Rollins writes, "quote by a turn of law," end quote, which sort of she uh, sort of obliquely explains elaborates on that phrase by writing that it was, quote, in consequence of the unwillingness of attorneys to litigate so large a claim in favor of a black person against white families. And I substituted a little bit of terminology there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically they just... Yeah, I just did the... Um... Sorry. <laughs> No, I was just going to say the um, the smallest figure that Measuring Worth has for $250,000 in 18. And this is probably going to be larger because I put in... I said 18. No, it is, it is 43. It is, is, is 43. That's a typo. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I thought it was. I was, yeah. Okay, great. Um, yeah, the smallest amount that that has for it, um, the purchasing power is yeah. 8.76 yeah. million. Yeah. So there's a lot small amounts. Yeah. They're doing about. pretty well. But that doesn't make what. Yeah, happens. I guess like. The only thing I. Like, I. I don't know exactly why it's being litigated. What I'm. What, what I'm getting from subtext here is just basically that people didn't like it that he was so wealthy um, and yeah and people don't want a a black woman to possess that kind of wealth yeah. because that's kind of anathema to their way of thinking and being. yeah so some legal sleight of hand happens and yeah yeah um, yeah, I imagine it's one of those things where someone becomes or points themselves executor and then decides to keep the money for themselves. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is all conjecture. Yep. Um, but in September of that year, 1843, going back in time from this sort of loss of the estate, Delaney founds and edits a newspaper, The Mystery, which was meant to, quote, bring black people's inflicted wrongs and injustices before the public. Um, and the first issue apparently sold 1,000 copies, which is actually, like, super good circulation. <clears throat> I come yeah, at this from, like, an academic perspective where 1,000 copies is like, whoa, like, 300 yeah. copies is sort of more of a norm. <laughs> but, um, and the circulation expanded rapidly from there. So, uh, lots of people are interested in hearing the news, um, in, in subscribe to this newspaper pretty quickly. So he runs it on his own for about nine months, at which point six men kind of buy into the newspaper, bought stock, I put in quotes. That's not entirely accurate, but they kind of 
become co-owners of the paper so that the financial burden isn't resting entirely on Delaney. Um, And he stays on as editor for about four years after that. So it's this sort of major uh, period of his life where he's just reporting the local and national news um, that's of interest to the black community. Yeah, and then the other, um, one of the other noteworthy things that's happening during this time is he has 11 children. I'm just thinking of poor Kate. Yep. I know, right? So, yeah, he has 11 children, four of them, four, four of them, that's why I was doing the maths, four of them unfortunately (laughs) passed away, so seven of them survived. And he names all of his children after black leaders. That's really cool. I think we've only got the names of the surviving children, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yes. The oldest is, is this the old? Toussaint Louverture Delaney. He's born in 1846. Mm-hmm. Then we have Charles Lennox Ramond Delaney. Alexander Dumas Delaney. Saint Cyprian. I think that's my favourite. Saint Cyprian Delaney. Yeah. Falcon Suluk Delaney. Ramesses Placido Delaney and Ethiopia Halle Amelia Delaney. I like that one. Yeah, I like that one as well. I think St. Cyprian's still my favourite, but um, Ethiopia Halle Amelia is a pretty sweet name. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I couldn't find the dates of birth for these other children. Um, yeah, I think they've... But And this is actually probably the most we learn about his home life. Like, everything else is super focused on his public life. Um, yeah, I imagine yeah. they're on, um, like, we've talked about the problem of preservation before, and I imagine the records relating to a lot of his home life just aren't maintained, essentially. Yeah, and I think a big part of the problem here, or not necessarily a problem, but a big part of, like, why we know what we know is that uh, Delaney becomes this really important figure for Black nationalism in the 1960s and 70s. And so the historians who sort of do the first sort of recovery work about him in this time period are, are mostly just really focused in his politics. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, Yeah. So that same year that Toussaint is born, um, which I think is the eldest, Delaney, in his capacity as the editor of the mystery, is sued for libel by Thomas Fiddler Johnson. Um, I really want to know how he got his um, nickname, but I don't. I couldn't find any. I mean, probably he plays the fiddle. I would. Assume. Oh, that makes sense. I was thinking of something more like Deferry. not nefarious. I mean, I, will... I mean, like I was. I don't know if this is a phrase in the states but someone might fiddle their taxes so uh, uh no it's not really okay. but this is the heart of bluegrass and yeah. folk uh music so uh it would not su- it would it would be surprising if he wasn't named fiddler because he plays that the fiddle. makes so much more sense i'm so glad you're here to explain these kind of things to me um <laughs> I was in a bluegrass band. Like, that's the only reason I know. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, Fiddler 
is a black man who, according to Delaney, was in business with fugitive slave catchers. So not a cool dude. Um, he sues Delaney for libel, no. presumably for saying, it's for saying that he's in business with um, slave catchers. And Delaney is found guilty by the jury of his peers, who are all white, as you might expect. Um, but then in a rare, like, good move from a person in power, the governor of Pennsylvania, Francis R. Shunk, steps in to cancel the fine. Um, that Delaney's been sentenced to pay as a result of being found guilty. Another great name. Yeah. This is not the first time a governor steps in on his behalf either. Yeah. I mean, no, sorry. This is only the first time a governor steps in on his behalf. He's got, he's got friends in high places. Like Delaney's pretty well regarded by his community and also pretty well connected. Um, And that just becomes truer over the course of his life. Uh, Speaking of well connected, at the end of the very next year, at the age of 35, Delaney expands his editorial career. Delaney expands his editorial career by joining the motherfucking North Star, um, so the North Star, but uh, as co-editor with Frederick Douglass, whom he had met four months earlier in Pittsburgh. Um, if you don't know, that is like the preeminent black-run newspaper in the 19th century. Like, that is the most prestigious one. Most well-known one. Um, Yeah. So, to pursue this opportunity, Delaney gives up editorship of the mystery. And I think we're going to read you one of his North Star editorials in the writing episode, so make sure to listen to that one. Um, He writes a lot of different and varied pieces. At one point, he does sort of this history of the Freemasons, like, just wide-ranging stuff. And, um, this is just a sidebar, but I'm turning 30 later this year, and I am, like, living for all of the folks we've been covering who are doing cool things, like, even starting their careers, quote-unquote, later in life. So, like, just the fact that he's, like, leveling up, like, so much in his 30s and later, it's, I don't know, it's really exciting for me, because, like, especially within the context of being a writer. Yeah. There's this real myth that people do their best work before they turn 25, like, which is ridiculous, but also narratives sort of take a toll on you the more you hear them. And I, like, I, I, for a while after I turned 25, I was, like, super, like, I haven't made it yet, I'll never make it. So, I don't know, just, like, I just want to highlight, especially, like, you listeners out there. Yeah. There is no time limit on what, like... Yeah, there's no, like, sort of cutoff date by which you can do the things that you're really passionate about doing and that are really important and world-changing, um, as Delaney shows us. <laughs> so he just keeps on achieving all of these really cool things, doesn't he? So in 1848, Delaney, he does a tour of the Midwest kind of racking up subscriptions to the North Star, but he's also giving lectures as he goes. Um, 
and I know I just said that some of the archives aren't preserved, but something that is preserved is a lot of his correspondence with Frederick Douglass. Obviously, especially with Douglass's autobiography, interest in him has kind of remained at the same... Is that correct to say that it's kind of remained at a decent level? Yeah, I think Frederick Douglass has... Like, a lot of figures are really important and then sort of disappear because people lose interest. But Frederick Douglass has always been sort of like, I want to say the figurehead. Like, if we're talking about abolition in a history class, you'll learn about Frederick Douglass. You probably won't learn about anyone else except, like, maybe Harriet Beecher Stowe, maybe Harriet Tubman. um, But Frederick Douglass... Or maybe Sojourner Truth, too, but definitely Frederick Douglass. Like, he's the only one who you're guaranteed to learn about, which says something about our school system, but also says something about how important Frederick Douglass is. Yeah, yeah, I feel like, um, I mean, my reference points would have been like Frederick Douglass and maybe Aluado Equiano. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, thrown in there for good measure of an earlier period. But yeah, yeah he is one of the few who remains well known. Yeah. I mean, in college, you'll definitely... That's why we have their letters. Yeah. So... Yeah, yeah. um, If you... Maybe your your local libraries will have access to this. It's uh, a lot of... Some of his letters are reprinted, or some of their correspondence is reprinted in uh, this collection I found referenced on the Encyclopedia of Virginia website called Martin R. Delaney, A Documentary Reader. And that's by uh, edited by Robert S. Levine, who I've mentioned a couple of times um, already. Yeah, a lot of a lot of that book is also available on Google Books. Oh, good. Books, which is always a good resource if you can't access things otherwise. Yeah, so um, I didn't have time to really dive into those letters in preparation for this episode. Maybe they will give sort of some context for what I'm about to say next, which is that over the course of the next year, Delaney and Douglas have some sort of disagreement, uh, which makes Delaney decide it's time to leave the North Star. So in 1849, he um, cuts ties with the North Star and Douglas and decides to head back to Pittsburgh to practice medicine again. Um, And, like, starts another one of those medical apprenticeships we mentioned earlier. Yeah, and then uh, speaking of medical, in 1850, um, Delaney is 38 and he's admitted to Harvard Medical School. So it's him and a couple of other black men, and obviously it would be men, are admitted around this time. He only lasts a month before some crybaby racist white boys petition the Dean Oliver Wendell Holmes and faculty members to, quote, exclude black people, which is not how they word it, from the student body. I think I'm trying to be too much like Moira Schmidt and say, babe. Cry-baby, racist white boy. <laughs> Which, is, this is obviously not a laughing matter, but yeah, he, um, they have yeah, a few black men, yeah. and then as soon as there's uproar from the racist white majority, they kick them out again. There's something really similar happens actually around the same time at the University of Virginia. Uh, this is totally a side, yeah. yeah, side trail, but just because I'm working at UVA and I learned about it. So I think in like the 1850s or maybe a slightly later, um, a black man enrolls in the law school uh, for the first time. And I think he lasts a year before 
maybe it's just a term, a term or a year, something like that. So, you know, fairly short time before his white classmates just raised such an uproar. Um, But he actually sues the school and wins the suit. Um, I'll link to that. So, yeah, yeah. Um, But Delaney does not sue. He, He just moves on with all the other many amazing opportunities he has, I'm sure this really is, like, devastating. Because you're admitted to Harvard. Yeah. And then... Yeah. I mean, yeah. There are no words. It's just... You're also... Ridiculous like and maybe, maybe this is horrifying. my own stereotype in mind, but, like, you get admitted to Harvard based on your merits and this work that you've been, like slugging away out for years and doing so many apprenticeships and then these white guys who are probably in there because their daddy's rich like not to be too cynical but probably has a big part to do with it yeah i mean cause a fuss and get you kicked out like that must be so frustrating i mean like probably because he's miles and miles ahead of all of them and they're just like insecure and racist yeah, right. right like yeah yeah oh. i feel like i need to go and have a good scream after this episode i know i know um yeah um yeah the next bit is um go ahead i don't know kind of scream worthy i would say because in 1852 he becomes elected mayor of Greytown, Nicaragua, um, thanks to a friend, David Peck. And <laughs> this is just kind of ironic. Like, so Delaney's never been to Greytown himself. Um, and in part that's because he's busy chairing an anti-colonization meeting in Philly. So while he's chairing this meeting against colonization, his friends have nominated him as an American to be mayor of a town in Nicaragua that he's never been to. Yeah, it's just so it's weird. It's a really weird move. Yeah. Like, wh- why doesn't he, like, turn it down? Or, I don't know, like... I I think, well, it's yeah. like, he hasn't actively, like, sought out this role. It's his friend that's done it for him, right? So, right, he's right. being gracious, or, but I, I don't know, there's a lot of reasons. But it maybe. just seems like a yeah. weird... Yeah. move to um, nominate, nominate this guy. Especially, yeah. yeah. Es- especially given the timing of it and what he's focused on. Yeah. Yeah. That that same year, though, he uh, takes a year-long position as a principal of a school for black children in Pittsburgh. Um, yeah. Like, he's never doing just one thing at a time. Um, so, we mentioned in the Around the World segment that uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin is published in 1853. Um, that's after it's serialized in newspapers, by the way, just for those of you who are yeah. interested. But um, he, uh, Delaney gets into a newspaper fight with old frenemy Frederick Douglass over this book um, because Delaney feels that it is racist and colonizationist. Um, colonialist. I don't know. That's the word that I saw used, so I repeated it. But colonialist. Yeah. Uh, but 
yeah, this... So, the thing about Uncle Tom's Cabin is that it was a... It was A lot of people consider it the first modern bestseller. It outsold the Bible in the year it came out. And that's a huge deal, because the Bible is, like, still to this day one of the top best-selling books of all time. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's outsold the Bible. <laughs> um, but a lot of people had really mixed feelings about it. I mean, a lot of black people as well as a lot of white people um had really mixed feelings about it and uh delaney was one of them um not i actually still to this day have not read more than like a few excerpts of it which is um one of the things on my to-do list that i still just haven't done but um i mean you can't read everything so so. Yeah, yeah. So I don't, like, I'm not 100% sure why he feels that. Um, I know, like, a lot of stage adaptations at the time were super racist because they kind of changed the ending. Um, But I don't, yeah, I don't know what his particular, like, reasons for that were. But he gets into this newspaper fight uh, with Frederick Douglass over it. (laughs) Uh, We move into sort of, like, the increasingly political activist part of uh, Delaney's life. So, um, in 1856, he moves with his family to Chatham, Canada West, uh, which I think is a settlement, just the name of a settlement uh, in Ontario. And he takes a role as a contributing editor to the Provincial Freeman, which is a newspaper there. Um, Two years later, he's in a series of meetings with John Brown, who is a militant abolitionist, um, and he uh, he has memorialized in songs like John Brown's Body. He's another one of these like major figures, like Nat Turner, um, because he he just sort of makes it his life's mission to destroy the institution of slavery, and he's sort of like an any means possible kind of figure. So he. Um, plans all these attacks and i think like all of his sons die his adult sons die like either like because people are trying to get retribution against brown or like because in in, like these orchestrated attacks that brown plans um just like a very quick background on who john brown is so he's in these meetings with john brown um in 1858 but in november of that year He's also doing this other thing, which is organizing the National Emigration Convention, which um, uh, is in part like, right, like which is one part of like the sort of back to Africa movement that sort of starts happening in this time period, where where a white abolitionists but also free black people are sort of trying to figure out solutions to this huge social problem and thinking, okay, well, like, maybe we should just move back to where our parents or our grandparents were from. Um, So the National Emigration Convention authorizes Delaney to explore, uh, uh, to not explore, (laughs) to put together a Niger Valley exploring party. Um... And I think this is really interesting timing, considering his meetings with John Brown. Like, maybe really fortuitous timing for Delaney, because in in 1859, um, 
Brown organizes this attack at Harper's Ferry, uh, the raid of Harper's Ferry, which basically most of the people involved in that attack are killed, and then Brown is captured and eventually hung for organizing that attack. So if Delaney was sort of like planning this with John Brown or like being courted by John Brown to join this effort, like he 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 could have died as part of that. So I think I wonder if like yeah. the Nigeria thing saves Delaney's life. This is entirely speculation on my part. But yeah, that's I think that's a good point though. Because it is the kind of thing that Delaney is very interested in. He is sort of like, you might be more familiar with Malcolm X as this sort of um, more militant figure. Yeah, Delaney is very much of that sort of school of um, Black activists, right? He, He thinks violence is acceptable. And like he's, but he also does a lot of nonviolent sorts of things too. It's like, yeah. So anyway, he, I think he, 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 he would have been very into like working with Brown. So yeah. So as part of this um, Niger Valley exploring party in 1859, Delaney sails to Liberia to meet up with other members. He tours Yoruba and the surrounding region, and he and one of the other members that he's met with is called Robert Campbell. So he and Campbell make a deal with the rulers of Abeokuta, which if I've pronounced that wrong, please let me know. <laughs> I'm patience. Um, which is a city in Nigeria, and they make this deal that would allow black emigrants to settle on the land of the Egbar people. And that's the year that he also becomes a novelist and a science fiction novelist. Uh, so that's the year that he writes Blake or the Huts of America, um, as Courtney mentioned, and that is published in the Anglo-African magazine from January to July. So I think we'll leave Delaney in Liberia starting to write his novel, and we will be back for a third part very soon. Yes, yeah. As you can tell, Delaney's life is so... I don't know, like, what's the right word? Action-packed? He's, he's, got, he's got so much going on, it's, like, really hard to narrow it down and have any sort of cohesive yeah. narrative. So, yeah. I mean, yeah. Part three coming soon. Yeah, and I think in, in a lot of ways it feels right to, you know, um, devote as much attention to him as we did to Mary Shelley. So, oh yeah, yeah part three coming very soon. Yeah, and we're so lucky to have this much information about him too which is not always the case yeah yeah all right thank you for listening yeah thank you for listening and we will be back soon bye bye victorian scribblers is researched written and produced by me courtney floyd and my co-host eleanor dumbbell the podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, 
visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. Music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archives. <laughs>